Welcome to the Leadership Trip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome to the table another incredible guest. But before we do, could you do us a favor and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode? While you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of the Leadership Drip. Rob, welcome back to the table, my friend. You have hot coffee. I've chosen water this go-round to hydrate. But I'll probably have coffee too. So that is just that is the worst podcast introduction you've ever had. Like, <laughs> is it really? I needed to hydrate. What is that? Like, I don't know. It's the leadership drip. Well, bro. I'm, I'm fully caffeinated already from all the coffee earlier. So whatever. Anyways, Lame. we yeah yeah. Hey, good news is, yeah, and true. I let's share this with our, our listeners. You are almost Dr. Rob. Like you submitted that is true. your dissertation last week. That is true. I submitted my dissertation last week. Finally, we'll be defending sometime in April. I'll be defending in the early weeks of April, I believe. So, so, so now I feel bad because now at the table with us is Dr. Rob Nearly. Mm-hmm. I'm just Jeff with a master's degree, and also Dr. Steve Argue. That's right. Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. I'm the only doctor not in the room. Well, then you better get to stepping, son. Stepping. Dr. Steve Argue is a professor at Fuller Seminary, part of the Fuller uh, Youth Institute. Um, we've done a lot of research with their stuff when writing our yeah. dissertations and our thesis. His focus is on youth ministry and emerging adults in, uh, in their congregations. And he has an ebook releasing on March 24th titled Young Adult Ministry Now. Right. I'm sure you and I will be reading that one. So mm-hmm. welcome to the table, Dr. Argue. Steve. Hey, yeah, Rob, Jeff, thanks so much uh, for having me. Please call me Steve, except Jeff, you need to call me Dr. Argue. Love uh, it. And Rob does too, because that's the way we, we roll. Uh, I'm, drinking, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm drinking coffee too. Uh, just want to join you with that. Excellent. Uh, and I also, I, I, I do have a discipline of trying to, drink about three cups of water before my coffee though so i'm just connecting with both of you right at the moment gotcha. you're such a great counselor yeah. like you're a great mediator you know yeah, what i'm right saying there. Like, i'm there for you guys in the middle. people tell me you guys need that so that's i guess that's, one of the <laughs> that's true that's true yeah. so we talked off air and we have some commonality and some connections beside the water and the coffee yeah yeah uh well, we have both lived in Wisconsin, Steve, and now you're in SoCal where Rob That's has right. had residency. So how does a guy who lived in the snowy land of Wisconsin end up in SoCal? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a great uh, question. And people do ask me about that. I was uh, born and raised in the Midwest. Uh, we still have uh, family and friends in Wisconsin and Illinois and uh, Michigan and uh, and so we're really grateful uh, for that part of the country. And uh, what was interesting is I was um, I was a pastor uh, at a church in West Michigan called Mars Hill Bible Church, and um, I got connected uh, with the with the gang at the Fuller Youth Institute uh, way before I even worked there. Um, and so I got to know Kara Powell and Brad Griffin and Irene Cho and Jake Mulder. Um, and what was so cool about it is as a pastor, they were really interested in what I thought of their work. And, um, and I wasn't always kind, um, but they listened anyway. And so we just developed a great connection. And so over the course of time, um, I did some work with them and eventually um, Fuller uh, invited me out to teach at, uh, at the seminary. So I teach you uh, courses in youth, family, and culture. And I also research with FYI now. So it's just been a great nice. uh, connection uh, to come out here and do what I love to do, teach students and research and and do all that. And what I love about FYI is I think the listening that they did with me is something that still is a value with FYI. We really listen to the people that we want to serve. We want to take the most pressing questions that they have and do some research on it and then turn around and try to resource 
um, youth pastors and leaders and parents out there that we believe are the rock stars um, of faith. And uh, they just need some help along the way. And if we can do that, then that's a good thing. Yeah, that's awesome. Those names he listed were all in the footnotes of my thesis. How <laughs> 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 yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like Duh. he just like quoted my thesis outside of Kinnaman yeah. and, and the Barnegat and Matlock like yeah, and everybody yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. Those those yeah. are the core <laughs> cornerstones of my thesis. Well, work, so. from a from a disciplinary perspective, you're probably one of the um, I don't say with a few, but one of the the guests that we've had on the show that most explicitly addresses or talks about or teaches on this area that we have sort of formed the podcast around and this concept of young adults or as, you know, uh, maybe more academic term emerging adults is is maybe what is more commonly known as. So not everyone's going to fully understand the dynamics of that language. So can you just for a second, just kind of unpack what you mean when you say young adults, emerging adults and that whole conversation? Yeah, yeah, appreciate that. Um, and I think it's important. I mean, I think in most church circles, we hear this concept of young adults, and I think that's fine. I think in more academic realms, you hear this idea of, of emerging adulthood, which I think is important for us to understand so that we know who we're, we're talking about. In academic circles, this idea of emerging adulthood is a period between about 18 and 29, and it's considered a developmental stage, kind of like adolescence. It's uh, it comes after adolescence and before adulthood, and those who identify as emerging adults are usually on a quest to discover uh, things about their identity or identities. Actually, we're trying to harmonize a lot of pieces of who we are, our sense of belonging and our sense of purpose. Uh, and a lot of times emerging adults feel uh, in between because they're not teenagers anymore, but they're not adults either. And this longer road to adulthood is something that's more than just their choice. I think sometimes it's misunderstood, like, ah, I just don't want to grow up, or I just kind of want to hang out in the basement of my parents and play video games. Uh, but what we find is that actually what's going on is that as a developmental stage, the brain is still developing. Mm. I'm coming to grips with who I am as a person. And so I'm developing my own strength with that. And we live in a world where it takes longer to grow up. It, the degrees that you guys are getting to become what you want to be Um, The support that we have to actually um, be independent and on our own through our 20s actually um, takes longer. So there's uh, more preparation that's needed to become an adult, yet there's also less support. And I think what I try to um, communicate to leaders as well is that um, what I like about the term emerging adulthood is that it sort of situates in the 20s. And there's a lot of more we can say about it, which I won't in this podcast, Uh, but it's different than millennial or Gen Z. Millennial and Gen Z are sociological terms that define a period uh, that is significant for a cohort of people that oftentimes uh, has something unique that happens in a crucial time in their life when they're growing up that shapes who they are. So for a millennial, uh, 9-11 would be crucial, at least for the United States, right? It's shaped the way I think about the world, others, myself, um, uh, violence, uh, uh, safety, all those type of things. Uh, for, for Gen Z, we would say, obviously, the pandemic is shaping the way I think about public health, the way I think about the way the world works, the way I think about education or my family or these type of things. So, um, so these cohorts of millennial and Gen Z are great, um, but they're constantly getting older. Like when people talk about millennials, you know, we just need to re- realize, and you guys know this, I mean, they're 40 years old, like they're not like right. 20s anymore, right? So, um, so emerging adulthood allows us to really kind of focus in, I think what you guys are really interested in, and that is is this young adult period, really 18 to 29. 
Yeah. yeah, that's good. Steve, when did now, and this is sort of the academic question because I did yeah. some research on the emerging adulthood when I was writing my thesis for my master's degree. Great. When did it move from 25 to 29? So early on, it was 18 to 25. Like that was sort of that gap of emerging yeah. adulthood. When did it move now to all the way up to 29? Is it just, or is it mixed bag on who's saying that time frame? Well, it, it, as you know from your own academic studies, there's always a, a lot of discourse uh, and a mixed bag about it. Some would say that emerging adulthood now goes up to 35. It really depends on who you talk with. But what's unique about emerging adulthood, it's a term that was coined by Jeffrey Arnett around right. 1999, 2000. So if you think about it in that way, this study is only two decades old. So uh, we're still mm. sort of trying to come to grips with what it means, how, um, how broad uh, the range goes, uh, who's affected by it, and uh, the fact that it's uh, expressed itself in different sort of ways. It seems as though the collective understanding is, is that it really goes up to about 29, and 30 for an emerging adult is sort of the magic number. At 30, most emerging adults say, I wanna have some traction in my life. Yeah. I want to um, kind of know where I'm going. Like talk to emerging adult and ask them like, um, I talked to them about the age 30 and they will have a, a bit of a panic attack inside. I've talked to some of my graduate students. They literally say there's a clock ticking in my head yeah. and it explodes at 30. There's mm -hmm. something uh, unique about 30 that uh, is a bit symbolic uh, for young adults that I think mm. is important for us to pay attention to. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's vague. It's not, it's not actually the number 30, but it's the symbolism of it that I think right. is really, really powerful. So, so let's continue the geek out here for a second, because I'm curious, like uh, Chap Clark used to write a lot about extended adolescence. So how is like an extended adolescence and emerging adult sort of a, a parallel or a crossover? Yeah. Or, you know, are those two completely different conversations? Like, yeah. Like, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, well, I work with Chap. He's a good friend of mine, and he's a brilliant man. So anything I say, Chap, I love you. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think um, because a lot of my research interests have focused in on uh, on, under, on uh, undergraduates, on emerging adulthood, um, that type of thing, um, I really believe um, what the research is saying, that um, emerging adulthood is a, a unique a new developmental period. I think if you look at the discourse, this idea of late adolescence was probably something that was more like in the 90s as we were realizing yeah. that adolescence was kind of pushing beyond 18. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the nomenclature that seemed to work. The problem with it is, is that to call a 25 year old an adolescent just seems kind of odd. It's actually quite um, offensive to a, a 20 something, even the word 20 something is a bit offensive. Um, and so I think what we just realized is that um, the language of adolescence has a shelf life and something changes at 18 that's unique. And we know right. this from emerging adult literature as well, that um, generally speaking, and I'm being really, really general, um, a teenager up to age 18 has a similar sort of life experience, right? They're sort of expected to go to school. They, they live under um, the auspices of a parent or legal guardian. Um, they may work um, but their experiences are somewhat similar, but at 18, like everything changes, right? I mean, right. You could go to college, you could work, you could join the military, you could take a gap year. It's that moment that something switches in a young person's um, sort of psyche uh, and their options open up in ways that is really, really exciting and actually quite daunting for them all wrapped up at once. So we see that there's something sort of signaling something different than adolescence sort of happening yeah. at 18. Cool. So, so Steve, the, the primary questions and our listeners know this that we founded the podcast on that we 
thought we had answers to or wanted to come to answers or conclusions. We had no answers. Had Let's no be answers. honest. Yeah. We still don't. We still don't. <laughs> we had no answers. We're not sure we do now. <laughs> but right. it centered on two right. questions, and, and they were more at that point definitive. Why are young adults leaving the church? Yeah. And how can we engage them and recapture them or keep them in the church? And what we've learned a little bit is maybe they're not leaving the church, but leaving churches. Uh -huh. So from your study, your perspective, what you're learning, are they leaving the church? Where are we at with that? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, and it is in some ways the, the million dollar question, right? Um, right. Yeah, as you know. So uh, let me try to turn this in a couple of different ways, because I think it's actually a more complicated question than people always um, let it be. And maybe that's just the, the nerd professor in me that's talking right now. So are they leaving churches? Here's my answer. Yes and no. And we must ask why. Okay. So here's some things that we know to be true. Um, that those that are in high school, they graduate from wherever they graduate from, usually we find, and the research seems to, um, to hold this to bear, um, that uh, post high school, we see a drop in church attendance. Mm -hmm. Okay. And here's the kicker. Uh, that drop has been consistent since 1970. Mm -hmm. This isn't new. This right. is the fact that once one leaves home, um, something uh, happens. And so a lot of uh, people would say that the reason that we see a drop in church attendance among ch church people uh, is an issue of differentiation. If I've been told my whole life to go, that I need to go to church by my parents, which is a great thing. I totally encourage that. I'm not trying to say that's bad. Um, and now I'm in uh, my apartment or my dorm room for the first time. It's a Sunday morning. I, I was out late the night before the birds are chirping and I'm thinking to myself, I'm an adult now, or at least I'm not like at my parents' home anymore. What am I going to do on that Sunday morning? I'm not going to go to church. It's not right. because I hate God. It's I'm just trying to, in many ways, find my own sense of who I am. And so um, I think we have that going on. I think are there are other researchers like Tim Clydesdale that would say that those that are just uh, in their early 20s are going through this period of daily life management, that the, um, um, the deep questions of meaning uh, are things that are important to me. But as I step into a world where I have to find new friends, uh, perhaps do my homework, do a job, learn the daily life management of what it starts to feel like to be an adult. I take the existential questions that I have and I put them on a shelf because I only have time to make friends, find food and make sure that I get my homework done. Okay. Right. So, so this is, this is a temporary move um, that happens that eventually once I begin to sort of get this daily like man life management in order, I can begin to bring down the, um, the deep, meaningful questions of life that are important to me and begin to talk about them. I think this is one of the reasons why second, third, fourth year college students sometimes change their major, right? Yeah. Um, they've been told they were going to go into a particular major, or they're just interested in finding friends. And then all of a sudden they get a little bit further in and life begins to become more manageable. And they start to go, do I really want to do this? Mm -hmm. Is this what I'm really about? Is this what's really important to me? Have, am I just doing this because someone told me I was good at it? Or is this something I really, really want? And so we actually see it in our students that they begin to ask the deeper meanings of, of life a little bit later on associated with that. So um, I think that they're um, thinking about these things. And I think as a result, I think that they, they're just not showing up at churches. And so uh, at the same time, I don't think that means that they're um, they're leaving faith. I actually think that they're 
pursuing something? And maybe that's the better question. We always ask the question, why are they leaving church or are they leaving a church? But maybe the question is, well, where are they, where are they going? Uh, yeah. We know a lot of things, right? Uh, we know that probably half of the startups happening in this world are done by emerging adults. Half of those are women. They're going to gap years, base camps, yoga studios, online networks, places where they can find community and purpose. And I, I think that one of the things the church needs to realize is that when we say we're a church, we have community, come here. There's lots of places for community for young adults, right? Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily like a, a distinction anymore. Um, and I think what this means is that um, uh, we find a lot of times that we critique young adults for not showing up at a pre um, prescribed uh, day and time of the week for them to show up. And then we get mad when they don't, or we make assumptions about them not being there. But maybe what we need is a broader imagination and recognize the fact that just because young people aren't showing up where we expect them to show up doesn't mean they're not showing up. Right. Um, and I, I feel like we have a, we have a learned blind spot uh, as leaders sometimes and, uh, and, uh, and a, a limited imagination of the amazing things that I know you guys know um, that young adults are doing and, and care yeah. about and want to be a part of. And, um, and so I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to spend more time encouraging people to explore those spaces rather than um, worrying about the fact that they're not showing up at 9am on Sunday morning somewhere. It's a, it's a really interesting framework to, to rebuild from, because I think even, even as recently, I would say within the last couple of months, you know, even Jeff and I alone, and I think he's kind of mentioned a little bit. I mean, even now we're wondering, okay, are we really asking the right questions? Are they leaving church and how do we get them to stay? Yeah. Um, uh, Terry Parkman, we recently had on the show, uh, we had a great conversation with him and it's, and, you know, kind of his framework was they're not leaving the church. They're actually changing it. Right. And so I think it's a, it's a micro, it's a microcosm of uh, the point that you just made that I think often gets overlooked. And that is not the church is not the only or the distinctive community anymore. Mm -hmm. Young adults, emerging adults are finding community in a vast multitude of reflections. Yeah. And it's satisfying those relational and emotional needs in a lot of ways that we would say the classically uh, uh, practicing church on a Sunday morning would typically fulfill, right? right. And so right. so maybe the, the the harder question or the better question, depending on your how you want to phrase it is, how do we be the church in those spaces? Yes. Right. Yeah. And I know that there's a theological conundrum there. I know, I know all about the, you know, the Ecclesia and all that's like, I understand that, like, but how, how are we being the gospel or being the church in those spaces rather than expecting them to accommodate necessarily the space that we provide? And I know that that's a, that's a huge tension because there's, there's a lot of value in the local church and what it looks like. You know what I'm saying? So absolutely so with that tension a little bit. Well, you know, I find it interesting that when people ask, well, why are young people leaving the church or how do we get them back? Do you notice who's always moving in those questions? Young people. Young exactly. Adults. And the church is never moving. And so I'm all about the gathered community. I just need to recognize, I think the gathered community needs to recognize that part of the calling of the church is to give itself away, to, to, to show up at the, in the places uh, where young adults say they need the church the most. Uh, and quite frankly, um, I, I just want to 
all our friends listening in to hear. I mean, I think we're all about the church. I don't think that's the problem. I, I think I think the forms of church can take different forms, however. And I think yes. we just need to recognize that a lot of the forms of church that we hold right now are embedded in a, a way of thinking, of teaching and learning, of culture um, that really isn't theological. It's much more cultural. And um, so can we can we decouple those a little bit and hold on to a good theology of what the church is about and recognize the fact uh, that maybe what we need to do with the church is give ourselves away. And this gets into issue of power. This gets mm-hmm. to in- issues of privilege. This gets into all these sort of issues as well. Because quite frankly, and this is, I'll just get a little fired up here for a second. There's just a lot of churches that aren't inter- interested in young adults because they don't have money to give and they don't have time to, yeah. to, to invest in the way that churches want to. So uh, knowingly or unknowingly, I fear that some churches uh, are kind of like, yeah, they're just not a really good investment of our time. Our ROI of investing in them yes. is the same as uh, the middle-class uh, professional that has, you know, two kids and a dog and, you know, uh, that type of thing. You know what I mean? So, um, but if we, if we care, if we actually believe that, uh, that young adults uh, are worth it, uh, if we actually believe that uh, they hold the questions and a vision of the kingdom of God that we need, then, then it's worth it. And we, we better figure out ways to, to connect with them. And I think part of that is on, is on us uh, as, as older, an older generation um, to do that. Psychologically, this is something interesting to think about, if we think about power for a second, is that I think in a lot of churches too, I think that the, the messaging is... Once I have the power, then I can control the way church works and I can get what I want. Hmm. And so what happens is, is every generation finally gets a hold of the power. And what do they do? They don't give it away, right? What would happen if those that have the power actually give it away? What will the next generation do? They'll go, boy, I saw a generation that had the power and they gave it away. What am I going to do? I'm going to give it away. So we have, a, we have a dysfunctional way of thinking about uh, what we at NFYI would call keychain leadership in the sense that it's hard to give power away uh, for the yeah. sake of the other and we hold on to it. And so we, we have a dysfunctional problem associated with that. And so I just think there's a lot of things that we can do if we open up our imaginations and actually take some risks. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, um, that's an ascription to human nature, right? I mean, we see yeah. this in, in political realms where, you know, someone overthrows a dictator and now all of a sudden they're in charge and what do they do? they become a maybe a more benevolent dictator, but a dictator nonetheless, right? Absolutely. So it's so it, it's just a, an aspect of human nature that we have to contend with. And yes, even in the church. Yep. And, you know, if we could just call it what it is and have more open dialogue and more honest dialogue about about those power dynamics that exist, I think it, it, you I think you're right. It would change a lot. I, I fear I that, it, that our generation Gen X, because it felt like we had to wait a long time for our turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that when, now that we're getting power, let's say, or control or whatever it is that, that we may not release it so quickly, all the things we said we would do, like, if you give us a chance, this Gen Xers, we're going to do a whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so my, my hope is that, that we, because we've waited so long, it feels like a lot of us to get into leadership, um, that, that I hope that that's not the case. So that we we live open-handed we live aware that we didn't get our turn let's say however we want to phrase that or didn't get the opportunities that maybe we felt were afforded to us or our pathways made for us i think it's why church planning was huge and and still is right now because yep. we just were like hey let's go carve our own path right that we would be sort of the let's say, i hate to use a john the baptist term but the forerunners for yeah. others 
to come behind us. So how do we, when we get the authority, really open spaces for other people and not live close-handed with it, but live open-handed to help this generation that's coming up that has lots of zeal, lots of passion for the Lord to get them to place quicker? You guys tell me, you guys are doing cool stuff. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I think I'll tell you one place I think we have to start. And um, this may not seem strategic, but I think sometimes it's overlooked. And I know that you guys work with young adults, so you'll be able to appreciate this. I think we just have to say we're sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I find that a lot of young adults are really not interested in new ideas until some of the hurt and pain has been addressed. Um, I feel uh, in, in the work that I do that there have been places where I feel like I've really advocated for young people. And there's some places that I've perpetuated some things that have caused pain. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think a younger generation just needs to hear, we love you. Um, we've, we've blown it in some ways we have, we, you've inherited a world and a church, um, that, uh, that we've given you that has beauty, but also has some really harsh edges to it. And uh, we just want to say, we're sorry. And, um, I think, I think that's a great place to start. I mean, in some ways yeah. we just, we kind of need a, to be a healthy church. I think we just have to sort of admit that rather than expecting that we just kind of move on. I mean, that, you know, that's just like classic, like family systems, right? Like don't yeah. talk about the elephant in the room, you, yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh man. So, you know, I, I think that, I think that's a start. I think, I, I think we also just need to recognize that uh, yeah, I've been saying this for a while, but I mean, young people are, aren't the problem of the church. They're actually our prophets. The questions they're asking, the, right. the things they're thinking about, we just, I think we need to listen to it and not be so quick to dismiss. Um, some of the things that are said aren't necessarily done tactfully or, um, or, or maybe are fully thought through. Um, but I think when, when young adults have the courage to speak up, I think maybe we can develop the ability to just, um, to lean in and, and listen, uh, a little bit, uh, a little yeah. bit more. We actually need to, it's, this is actually, um, it's just not like fuzzy feeling. I, I actually think it's getting harder. I mean, we, we talk about this, um, I talk about this in the book a little bit, but, um, so we we have two we have two hurdles to to really connecting uh, with with young adults. One is uh, is closeness bias. Um, a lot of uh, adults think that they understand young adults because they were young adults once. You know, when I was your age. You know that mm -hmm. phrase. Um, the reality is is that the world is moving faster and faster um, in such a way that um, when we think that we understand young adults, we actually we actually don't. And closeness bias is uh, is when we think that we're familiar with people that we're close to, and we stop asking them questions. Yeah. So so this is a problem um, where we make assumptions about uh, people that aren't actually true, or we haven't caught up. The second thing is, and this gets a little bit to what I just said, uh, it's what I'm calling intragenerational speed. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about like the generations being like 20 years, you know, you have Gen X, millennial, uh, Gen Z. Uh, but what we're actually finding with some sociologists and philosophers are saying is that actually this generational cord of 20 years, which is, you know, always a bit um, artificial, is actually shrinking that within 20 years, you don't have one cohort, you actually have like four or five cohorts. 
Uh, oh, wow. Meaning uh, that the college students that are graduating uh, the university as seniors are ha had a completely different freshman experience than the freshmen that are coming in now. Like take the pandemic out of it for a second. Why? Because technology, communication, education, resourcing, uh, global impact, everything that's happening is changing so quickly that the, the, the overlap of a common experience is less and less, which means we can't make assumptions about each other's experience. We actually have to lean a little more to understand. So empathy is a crucial step toward understanding and we can't make assumptions about the people that we serve. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, there, there's such a wake up call for this, for this kind of conversation. And, and I think part of the, the motivation for Jeff and I to kind of do the whole show, to mm. go through this whole process was because we want to, to help, genuinely want to help local churches wake up to this reality because i think the american church and i'm always very careful to be critical of the american church because yeah. I, I love it yeah but i think i think the american church is so far down on the backside of the bell curve that we don't really have much time or many options before we start talking about change or die scenarios you, you, yeah. you know what i'm saying like yeah. like we we really as leaders uh, xers as as Zers or whoever, like we, we really, as leaders, we have to be able to create opportunities where dialogue is open and it's free and yeah. it's, and it's empathetic and it's understanding and it's just, you know, discipleship oriented. We have to be able to create spaces where, where these kind of things can happen. And yeah. I think the struggle for a lot of leaders, including myself is, is not only that we don't ask questions, we don't actually know what questions to ask. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because we, we feel so out of sync because technology, education, all the things you just mentioned yep. are going so fast. I can't keep up. Yeah. And so I just kind of throw up my hands and say, well, I'm just going to finish the race the best I can and <laughs> we'll see what happens. Totally true. Like a generation ago, your, your sermons weren't fact-checked by smartphones. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, it is a different game for leaders out there. And, you know, I think I really appreciate what you're saying and that I think we just need to have empathy for leaders as well. Like, more is expected of pastors than ever before um, and, uh, and leaders than ever before. And it's, it's hard. It, I mean, just yes. I mean, I just want to really agree with what, what you're saying. Yeah, there. I mean, it's one thing when people would gather over lunch and criticize your sermon. It's like live yik yak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. yik yakking your sermon and like crushing you anonymously. The one social media app I will not get on is yik yak. Yeah. I don't. I don't think my ego can handle it though. I'd be crushed. But I mean, just I crush. Like, like it, that's the shift we've made. And I think Rob, great, great point. We don't know what questions to ask. Yeah. We, I think, Doctor Steve, you're. I'm calling Doctor Steve. How's that work? Wow, well, it's nice. All right. It's um, we have to do more listening. So how do we create spaces then to gather students and listen? Like if I'm the leader, if I'm the pastor driving my car right now and I'm pastoring 130, 150 people, we've got five or six young adults. Yeah. How do I go and go, hey, I want to listen to you. Where do yeah. I begin with that? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I love your example because I think um, in some ways, I think if you're a smaller church, you actually have... Uh, more nimbleness to actually listen. I think the larger you are, it's just, it's more complicated. So all you pastors out there that maybe feel like your church needs to be bigger or you need more money to reach young adults. No, 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 you, you're, you're it. 
Like we're, we need you. Um, and here's what you do. You text a young adult and you say, Hey, let's go grab coffee. And I just want to hear about your life. And if, and I'll buy, and I, I guarantee that half the time a, a young adult's probably going to, um, going to be open to that. And, you know, I think there's a couple things that are happening there. One is, I think we just have to listen with no agenda. Like we're not trying to like right. figure out how we can get them connected with the youth group to be a leader, or we're going to, you know, Hey, I want to know what you think about like, what kind of like midweek thing we can do and I need your input to represent all young adults. I mean, I just think, uh, I think just asking them about their lives and what they're, what they're up to, I think is really important. And what this does, I think for us as leaders is it gives us an instinct to be more uh, fluid um, uh, and uh, uh, able to have some fluency in just talking with with young adults again. Uh, no joke, one of our research projects, we just finished this five-year uh, research project um, where we worked with over 40 churches and hundreds of leaders and, um, and actually impacting um, thousands of, of young adults. One of the exercises that we had them do, it was like, it just sounds so funny, but it was amazing, is we just said, okay, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go and have conversations with young adults. And they're like, oh yeah, well, uh, well, all right, whatever. And the funny thing is, is they came back and they were like, that was amazing. I didn't realize what was going on with them. They, you know what they told me? This is what I'm thinking about now. And uh, again, I think, I think just these conversations can be really, really helpful. Um, one of the things that I talk about um, uh, in a parenting book I wrote for emerging adults, I, I just say one of the one of the phrases that you just can never stop using as a three word phrase that I would just encourage everybody to use more and more, and it's these three words: tell me more. Mm-hmm. Someone says something, don't try to answer it, don't try to respond. Just say, tell me more about that. So, so what's that like to still be looking for a job and you're not exactly sure how to, where to find one? Oh, so yeah, tell me more and let young adults be the expert in their lives to you so that you can seek to understand who they are. I actually think young adults just kind of want to be seen and heard on their own terms rather than, than otherwise. And again, I, 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 there's no like secret sauce to that, but here's what makes this so hard. It takes time. And the other thing is this, is that uh, if we believe that there's something of the spirit working when two or three are gathered, I believe that that's a formational moment Mm. where we actually can be changed in these conversations. And that for some people is really scary because all of a sudden I have to be open to not only being in a conversation um, to listen to somebody else with the hopes that maybe they'll change or come to my church. I have to be open to actually changing myself. That's a beautiful and scary moment, but that sounds pretty Jesus-y to me. Yeah. yeah. So, so stick with me here for a second. I'm going somewhere. Okay. So my, my Lent season this year, my focus is on motivational holiness, like understanding the, the raw motivations of my heart for the relationships that I have, the networks that I build, yeah. et cetera. And this particular one with young adults is also uh, a part of that because I think what you're saying is don't ask a young adult to go to coffee so that you can get them know to better so that you know where to plug them in or what they're asking for. Because I know me as a leader, my age, my, where I am, 
Yeah. I need them to be the face of what I'm trying to do. You, you understand what I'm saying? So, yeah. so I'm we and so for in order for for us to really accomplish what Jeff and I call reverse mentoring, it's not it's not so much about it's not so much about learning who they are so you know where to plug them in. It's about learning who they are so you know where they are, where they're coming from, how God is moving in their life. You know what I'm saying? And, and what then, they can teach you, and what they can teach you about yourself. And so I'm. So I'm really kind of personally on this journey, especially during this Lenten season of, of focusing on my own motivation of holiness, which is an invitation to, to really know people for who people are. Right. And I think that's what a young adult and emerging adult is really after. And of course they're going to say ridiculous things. And of course they're going to have inexplicable emotional sort of, you know, whatever, like, and of course they're, they don't have enough depth or experience to, to frame a, a cohesive thought on, on their career path or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's just about the presence uh, of being. I think it, what we're saying a lot at the table here is that um, though they may all dress alike, they may not admit they dress alike. They are deeply individuals and they want to be seen as individuals. Yeah. Like they'll follow a trend and they'll change a trend with the trend as fast as it can go. But deep down, they want to be seen and known individually. And I think that's the part of the listening that we got to go, hey, listen, I don't want you to represent the whole of everybody and tell me how to dress better on stage as a pastor, but let me know who you are. And that being seenness is it speaks volumes, I think, to to emerging adults, to especially Gen Z. Um, and so I think for leaders, we have to really start to be able to, to see them individually, which is hard if you're pastoring a con- long, large congregation. Like, cause you, you have this like wide birth of everybody and you have a generation that wants to be seen individually. So there's yeah. some tension there. Um, and that may yeah. be where young adult ministry comes in. Your, your new ebook is young adult ministry. Now is young adult ministry. The answer, like it's sort of a new trend. Is it, is it what we need now? Yeah. Um, I, I'm thinking about so many things you guys are talking about. So really quick to the conversation you yeah, guys yeah. ended up with before. So in a focus group of, of young adults, they were talking about these conversations. And one of the young adults says, oh yeah, they're like, I hate the bait and switch. And all the young adults mm-hmm. were like, oh yeah. And I was like listening and I was like pretending like I knew what they were talking about. And <laughs> being a good researcher, I was like, um, what do you mean by the bait and switch? They're like, oh, this is where like churches pretend like they're really interested in us. And then that's the bait. And the switch is they start like telling us all the places they want us to volunteer, the things that they want us to do. So our value is only seen as valuable if they contribute to the institution. I'm not valued just on my own. And I was like, oh my gosh, God forbid that I treat young adults like the bait and switch, right? So Anyway, I just, I was reflecting on what you guys just said, and I'm just really resonating with that. Okay. So you want to talk about this uh, idea of young adult uh, ministry now? Yeah. I, uh, this is, this is what I think about that. I don't think young, young adult ministry now is a program. Young adult ministry now is, is, is a posture. And, um, and let me, uh, let me frame this in, in a couple of ways that I think is important. First of all, if we know from emerging adulthood that the road to adulthood takes longer. So what young adults need is more grace and support. Um, and uh, think about a lot of our churches. Um, 
the assumption is is that you get married early and you start a family and so most of our programming is great up to 18 we don't know what to do with them quote unquote uh in the early 20s uh, until one gets married or, or anything else. And so I think this becomes a problem. I had one uh, young adult say to me, uh, my church is the only place that people constantly ask me about my marriage status. Yeah. That's not good. That's not good. Um, so I, I think we need to reimagine the fact that there is a unique experience that has happening through the 20s of which young adults need support and young adult ministry now takes that seriously of what that support looks like. I'll explain what I think we can do in that in a second. Secondly, um, we just need to remember that the road to, um, to adulthood for a young adult is more diverse. So there's not going to be a one size fits all. I think we can get away with that in children's ministry and youth ministry, right? Um, all of a sudden, though, when you have the diversity of young adults and the journeys they're on, um, uh, we just need to recognize the fact that we probably have to be more particular and it's going to be a less efficient approach that uh, we're going uh, to take. So there's just a little bit more um, customization that has to happen and particularity that we need to think about in our posture um, uh, for that. And then third, I think that um, because culture has speeding up and there's less overlapping experiences, we just need more intentionality. And it's what we've been talking about before, just uh, leaning in. Um, a, a bit more. And so I, I think that what this means for young adult ministry now is uh, th that um, the, the 20s are a time that takes longer to grow up, but there are researchers that would also say that the 20s are a time of investment, and both are important. Mm. There are some young adults that think they'd have longer to grow up and they waste their 20s. And they're, uh, as, as Meg Jay would say, psychologist, she would say, um, those in their 30s sometimes said that their resumes look better at 20 than they did at 30, right? Um, they've treated uh, their 20s as an extended adolescence rather than a decade of investment. If we say that this is a time of an investment, how might we help those in their 20s live into God's calling for their lives so that when they hit 30, they can say, I think I know who I am. I think I know where I'm going. I think I know what I'm about. And so this idea of investment then, I think plays to the strength of the church. And this is what I'm most excited about. What the church has that a lot of other institutions don't have is an intergenerational instinct. We actually gather in different generations that doesn't always happen, especially, um, more in like, uh, in, in like the United States, um, which is really powerful. And we also have a wealth of wisdom and experience of life that's lived, of careers, of experiences and everything else. And what young adults need, they don't need a program. They need to talk with a business person who is trying to, who, as they're trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus into accounting what it means to follow Jesus into motherhood, what it means to follow Jesus into social action, what it means to follow Jesus into teaching, um, what it means to follow Jesus into community, whatever it might be. Um, I believe that if we can teach our community how to have conversations with young adults, I think young adults would be lining up the doors of most churches because there's a wealth of information and, and wisdom that we can give away. And that's our strength. And that is our assets. And truly, that is the good news for young adults today. The, the key is um, to, 
to be ready to do that. And I think, uh, I think young adults um, would find a tremendous amount of help with that. Um, so what it requires of a church, and it can express itself in different sort of ways, but I think it's a, a reimagining of, of what we have to offer and, and really asking this question, uh, where do young adults need us the most? The second thing I'll say uh, with regards to this um, and uh, is this, is that young adulthood is a time of transition, but I think this is misunderstood. When we talk about transition, a lot of times we assume that it's temporary. Like if we can just hold on and they can get through the transition, they'll eventually come back. We'll mm -hmm. eventually kind of reset. Um, we just kind of got to get through this little bumpy time and it'll be all, all over. Let me, let me explain to you what, uh, what we've been learning um, through the work at Fuller Youth Institute of what we think transition is. What if we were to think about young adulthood as a decade of transition, particulated um, with particular transitions that are happening throughout, vocational transitions, relational transitions, educational transitions, spiritual transitions, all these things are happening along the way. And these transitions are not the exception, but they're the rule. As a matter of fact, uh, equanimity is particular. It only happens every once in a while. We're actually trying to serve a generation that's on the move. Now, if we assume that that's the case, then as churches, we're not surprised when people are in transition, right? We yeah. actually assume that that's the way we do ministry. The problem is, is that most churches, where do they spend most of their time? On the, on the, the, st the stable parts. Come to my church every week at this particular time. Young adults are like, yeah, that's not going to happen, right? right. Um, uh, come to this church in this particular area where you drive every week, uh, that's going to happen. What does a church that, that oftentimes uh, is in uh, living a life of stability and is thinking about things through the lens of stability, how do they serve a generation that's on the move? Yeah. And if we can begin to ask that question, all of a sudden we realize that we have resources and imagination that can actually not uh, freak out when we see young adults in transition, but we actually recognize the fact that maybe that's the place where they need us the most. So how do we step into those places? How do we allow for, uh, for work uh, in there? And I, I think this just opens up whole new possibilities of the way we think about how we gather, how we mentor, how we worship, how we disciple. Uh, and, I, I, and this is where I, I, think, I, think, I think there's tremendous hope and possibility. And, um, so what we try to do uh, in the book is try to unpack that. And here's why it's young adult ministry now. That's not a panic uh, right. title. The, 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 the idea is this, is that young adults can't wait for churches to stump someday catch up to yeah. their life experiences right now. Yeah. They actually need help now. And as church leaders, we need to take risks um, to, to do that. Not panic. But not think that somehow if we can just wait it out, they're all going to come around. We're going to actually um, not serve a generation um, uh, very well, and uh, and and I, I won't have it. I don't think you guys will either. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I'm really excited about. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to have it. <laughs> My brain is yes. swirling with about four yes. different questions. Um, no. So I want to push on a couple things here. I'm like, man, I got to go back to my dissertation. Um, <laughs> first, I want to talk about the transition and the yeah, stability yeah. piece. Um, yeah. So how does the church, <coughs> pardon me, because I think stability is important for a generation that's in constant transition, if that makes sense. So the sure. church having some stability. Uh -huh. So how does the church be stable 
and flexible then to be able to bend with the transitional pieces of this generation. Cause I, I live it out all the time. I, it, we, mm. we serve a lot of young adults in our church and we yeah. see it and they're they're The life is constantly shifting, but they're also searching for stability. So yeah. how can the church hold the tension of being the stable place of being flexible through the transitions that they're walking through? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, in a very basic way, in a very practical way, maybe for some of our leaders out there is that just don't ask a young adult to commit to something for a year. I mean, yeah. At, yeah. at our church, we just had something called short circles. They were six week small groups. And we're just like, okay. Hey, we're going to do things for six weeks after that. You know, the, one of the hardest things in Christian circles, have you noticed, like people feel really guilty about leaving small group. Like, I don't mean to do this to you, but I'm going to leave. Like people are in small groups for years <laughs> because they just don't want to leave them. Right. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and uh, young adults just can't do it. So what do young adults do? The mentality of a young adult is this, because I don't know if I'm going to be here next year because I'm in school or because I might get transferred or I might do a startup somewhere else. I'm not going to invest. Why? Because I don't want to say goodbye. Mm. How do we create a space where we can say six weeks is a worthy investment and it's okay. You can come, you can go. We will love you while you are here. We will bless you when you will go. I think that young adults need to know that that's okay. Oftentimes in churches, the narrative is sign your name on the dotted line with blood. And if you leave, we'll pray for you, right? So yeah. you know what I mean? So I think there's ways that we just have to sort of reimagine uh, and honor the transitionness of young adults without making them feel guilty about that. And this is where I think the stability comes in. If they do six weeks, I'm just using this as an example, you can say to them, and we'll be here after the six weeks. You want to, if you want to, if you guys think it was a great experience, you want to keep going, we're here for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's the stability that we leverage, but we honor the transitions that they're in as well. So that would be, that'd be like one example. You know what I mean? I, I think there's lots of examples like that. But. So that's a, that's a shift in values orientation then for quote unquote, the local church, right? Mm -hmm. Which let's be honest, is a huge ask, right? Having right. been a senior pastor, Jeff's a senior pastor. I, I don't exactly know what your pastoral ministry experience is fully, but, yeah. but you know, that's a huge ask for a local church to shift that values orientation uh -huh. into that sort of, you yeah. know, smaller bite chunks. I mean, it's important. Yeah. I think we can do it. I think we ought to do it. Yeah. I think the hard sell, I think for a lot of leaders, and I don't know how to conquer this, unfortunately, because if I did, I'd probably have a New York Times bestseller. But the point is, <laughs> the ROI on that is not tangible. Yeah. And we have to be able to let that go. The tangibility of the ROI and the tangibility of a spiritual ROI are not the same. Yeah. And it's a kingdom mentality that I think we have lost in a lot of ways yeah. because of the pressures of performance and the pressures of platforms yeah. that were unwilling and unable in some cases to even make those shifts that we want to make. Right. Right. The, yeah. The whole reality is about to be tested in my world as I, our church, we planted the church about six, seven months ago uh -huh. around centering around young adults, college students. Um, and we, one of our values is, is this idea of releasing like, and I've got some great young adults in my church yeah. who are going to graduate and move on. And like, part of me goes, I don't want you to leave because you're valuable yeah. here, yeah. but where you go, you're going to make a greater impact. And so by releasing you, there's greater kingdom impact. And I have to be able to count that as the win, like where you go and yeah. impact, yeah. that's a win. Maybe not inside the walls of this local confined thing we call church. 
but the kingdom win is that you go to Columbia and you start that mission or that whatever, yeah. you know, and that's hard as a, as a local pastor to go, I'm going to live so open-handed that the wins are when you leave. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think you guys are um, explaining something that my colleague, Scott Cormode is a leadership professor at Fuller says, he says, as leaders, we need to tell stories of future hope. Yeah. Mm. What we, what we do is uh, we have to create new and small narratives that the community, our communities begin to believe because our, our churches hold a narrative of the way things ought to be. We all have narratives, right? And, um, and so we evaluate based on those narratives. And if my narrative is you are a faithful member of this church, if you're here by the number of years that you're here, right? Um, the subtext is, hi, my name's Steve. I've been at this church for nine years. You see what we're doing there? We're oh, actually yeah. putting value on that, right? But if we say, hey, let me tell you about Samantha. Samantha is a graduate student. She was only here six months, but she was with us and she was part of the small group. And she said she needed us for this small amount of time. And now she's moving on to do a postdoc. But when she was here, she said, I loved this person and that person. And I'm so grateful for that moment. We just want to pray for her and bless her and send her on. What that begins to do is that's a story of future hope. Now yeah. the community goes, you know what we're about? We're, we are the exchange a zone in a triathlon where when our, when young people come through, they're refreshed and cheered and then they move on because we're about the kingdom, right? Yeah. Like that's just a, it's the same thing, but the narrative is different. So when we tell those stories of future hope, man, that changes everything, right? Yeah. So yeah. And there's so a lot good. of churches saying this little cliche that we're not about seating capacity, we're about sending capacity, but they're not sending anybody. Well, it's values or it, it comes yeah. back to values orientation. Yeah. I don't care what your mission statement is. Yeah. You're not living it out if it's not what you're promoting as a narrative from yeah. the pulpit or in your other leadership mm -hmm. context or whatever. Yeah, yeah. If the values don't match the message, nobody's listening, right? I mean, it, it right. doesn't it doesn't work. So yeah. so if your values are matching your message. Like if, if we're able to we're shift, trying. It, we're trying, right? I mean, <laughs> right. then 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 you're then you're getting it. So hey, okay, so here's here's the thing, we are like ridiculously out of time, right? That's, <laughs> that's the bad news because if you're listening, we actually didn't get to half the questions on the sheet. So that just means there's a part nobody, two probably coming somewhere in the news. Sheet, right? <laughs> well, there's listen, we're good reporters, we're good journalists, we're good <laughs> researchers. We've got a we've got a sheet in front of us, so yeah. that yeah. probably means there's a part two. But we do have. One question that we ask all of our guests that we would love to ask you at the end of every show. So what is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? So you guys are going to hate me for my answer, but my answer is every lesson. And this is why I think that classroom always raised topics, but the conversations always happen beyond, beyond the classroom. Wow. And you guys will know this in your research as well. Uh, classroom and formal settings are high risk. That's not where things really happen. And we know from student development that there are two campuses on every campus. There's yeah. day campus yeah. and night campus. Day campus is where I show up for class. Night campus is where the real meaning making happens. And so here's the kicker when we think about young adult ministry. Where do we look for where young adults are making meaning? Day campus sometimes is Sunday morning, 9 a.m. That's not where the meaning making is happening. Yeah. Where are the night campus spaces that young adults are showing up and how do we pay attention um, to that? I think that's true for you and me. I think it's true for young adults. I think it's true uh, for all of us. And so I think, I think where we look, our view shapes our ministry. 
it shapes the way we respond to young adults and it shapes the way that we talk about uh, good news. So um, I maybe sidestep the question a little bit, but I really think it's true. And I think you guys would resonate with that. I think that's what you're trying to do with your ministries. And I think there's a lot of listeners out there that are recognizing um, that day campus programmatic young adult ministry isn't working, but here's the good news. There's lots of other spaces to look. Yeah. And I think we've got some smart, smart people and compassionate people who love Jesus that are willing to step into those spaces. And that's what gets me pretty excited. Yeah. That's awesome. Gosh, such good stuff. Well, it's Dr. Steve Argue again, the book coming out, uh, it's an ebook young adult ministry. Now that will be available on March 24th should be shortly after the release of this podcast episode, sure. I think, or right in line with it. So, and as we always say here at the Leadership Drip, you have a seat at the table. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Drip. If something from this episode was helpful for you, then share it on your social media and tag us. If we see it, we may reshare it on our channels. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.